back to context clues. If you are listening to this episode, that means you completed the Dramaturg Playwright production role engagement for Indecent. So this week for Twilight Los Angeles 1992, you get to try out acting. As I mentioned last week, the hands-on portion of this week is more, well, hands-on than previous weeks have been, leading up to the final project. That means it represents a bigger chunk of your points than usual, but it also means you'll need to plan some more time for it. When people talk about acting, they tend to talk about it like a big game of make-believe. Actors memorize lines, put on costumes, and then pretend to feel feelings at each other on stage. But that's not really how it goes, or at least not anymore. Famous acting teacher Sanford Meisner said that acting is behaving truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Most contemporary acting methodologies require actors to be able to memorize their lines perfectly, to have any technical skills the production requires, like singing, dancing, or combat, and to come to rehearsal having done the textual analysis to understand how the whole play fits together. But then also, to not just pretend to feel what the character feels, but to do the work of living authentically in the moment as the character. How does that all work? We'll get there. Today we're going to check out the basic history and technique of stage acting for contemporary realism, learn about a stage specialist who helps actors do their thing ethically and safely, and then learn more about Anna Devere Smith's process before giving you a chance to try putting on your own acting pants. To understand how a contemporary actor functions, it's helpful to know a little bit about the history of acting. This is about to be a lot of information pretty quickly, so make sure you're listening as you're filling out your engagement tracker and not trying to fill it out after the fact. Full disclosure, this is the very quick and dirty version of acting history. If you're listening and thinking, mm, that seems like a simplified narrative, yep. check out one of our theater history courses for a more detailed scoop. In the beginning, as we learned from Crash Course, was Greek theater. There were also a bunch of other performance traditions in a bunch of other places, but contemporary acting styles aiming for psychological realism trace their roots back here. Other performances, like Beijing Opera and Kabuki, have their own lineages. And while Greek performance started with epic musical poetry, it eventually led to having a speaker separate from the chorus. The word thespian comes from Thespis, the name of the man we think created the role we think of as the actor when he emerged from the chorus and started reading poetry alone sometime in the 530s BCE. Greek theater added a couple more actors, differentiating people playing a role from, say, the person in charge of conducting a religious ceremony. Theater versus performance. And for a long time, we think the role of an actor remained pretty much the same. Show up, probably learn the lines, do the thing, get paid, and peace out. These actors performed in what we now refer to as a declamatory style, reciting the words so as to be heard and convey meaning, and adopting physical postures on stage for aesthetic purposes or to help establish meaning rather than, say, because that's how the character would naturally stand if they were a person. They learned their craft from other actors. Sometimes this training was highly specialized, with actors learning particular lines of business, sorts of roles they were most likely to perform, whether that was Commedia dell'arte characters or stock types like romantic ingenues. Interestingly, Commedia dell'arte is the first style of European theater we know of that regularly included professional female actors. They weren't universally accepted by any means, but we have records of them in Commedia beginning in the 1560s, a hundred years before appearing on the Shakespearean stage in the early 1660s. 
Otherwise, many of the actors we knew of until then were men, though we think women may have been a part of some religious performances and certainly performed in private masks at court. During this time, there were no directors as we think of them. Actors got their lines, often just their lines, called sides, not even the whole script, and just kind of figured things out together, sometimes with the help of the playwright or a company manager, sometimes with the lead actor taking responsibility for telling other actors how to work around him. In the 1700s, an actor-manager named David Garrick started pulling theater towards a more realistic acting style, but not quite the psychological realism we think of today. That wouldn't come until the Moscow Art Theater in the early 1900s. The work of Konstantin Stanislavsky, a founder of the Moscow Art Theater, is at the core of all contemporary actor training today aimed at cultivating a realistic acting style. Stanislavsky found that current acting styles weren't letting him create the kinds of theater he wanted to create. They weren't sufficient for properly capturing the nuances of Chekhov's writing, for example. So he created an actor training system that taught actors to live truthfully in the circumstances of a character, aligning themselves with the character by engaging the magic if. If I were this character and had lived through everything this character has lived through, how would I react to these circumstances? The goal wasn't to look like the actor was feeling certain feelings, but to use technique to have an authentic experience as that character. The audience is moved not because the actor is intentionally and artificially trying to make them feel something specific, but because they are in the presence of something real. In the United States, most major acting methods and acting teachers you hear of, the method or method acting which originated with Lee Strasberg, Sanford Meisner, Uta Hagen, trace back to a company called the Group Theater, most of whom trained with Stanislavski or his descendants at some point in his career. Not all actors stick solely with Stanislavski. There are all kinds of ways to create a role, but most methods of acting assume that an actor has a basis in Stanislavski's training before hopping into something new. So what does an actor actually do? How does this training turn into preparing a role? Let's follow an actor through a typical production process. First, actors train. That might look like going to college for theater, taking acting classes in a major city, or doing solo acting exercises like those suggested by Stanislavski or Uta Hagen. It might look like taking dance classes, voice lessons, or training in special skills like martial arts or juggling. Actors come in all kinds of bodies and look all kinds of ways, just like all people, but because an actor's body is the only performance instrument they have, it's really important that they know it well and are prepared to use it safely and sustainably. Professional actors can perform eight shows a week for weeks, months, or years, so making sure they have an instrument that can support that work is super important. Then they audition. Audition notices might come through a manager or agent, through a service like Backstage, or through the theater's Facebook group or website. Here at WKU, you're likely to see flyers if you're anywhere near the theater building, or you can get on the email list for the department. Auditions can take two forms. The first is an audition where actors are invited to read sides, short scenes from the play. They might read with an audition monitor or another actor, but they're expected to show up familiar with the material and having made specific choices about how they think they would play the part. This is what an actor is most likely going to prepare for when auditioning for a single show at a professional theater. The other option, which is popular in educational theater and for big unified auditions, auditions for multiple plays at multiple companies at once, is a monologue and or song, 
where the actor is given time to perform material from a different play than the one for which they are auditioning to show off what they can do. A monologue is a speech a character gives when they are speaking to another character on stage. If they're alone speaking to the audience, it's a soliloquy. A good monologue for most auditions has a few characteristics. It's from a published play. It's spoken by a character the actor could play. It's short, under 60 seconds. And, most importantly, it's a character who actively wants something and is trying to get it from the person they're speaking to. It's not just a character telling a story. No matter what kind of audition the actor is doing, it's their job to arrive looking like the best possible version of themselves, warmed up and ready to go. How does an actor warm up? Lots of ways, but let's do a tiny actor warm-up together. There's a video in your engagement tracker from Amy Walker. She's a dialect person, but she's also offering a really solid brief acting warm-up. Find a place you can move around and make a little noise and follow along. Ready, go! I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. Yeah, I like to move it! Now you're warm, which is going to come in handy very shortly. After an audition, the actor hopefully gets a callback. This is when they return to the theater to read different parts of the play with different people as the director tests for chemistry between actors and the actor's ability to take direction. As an aside though, not getting a callback doesn't mean you definitely won't be cast. If all that goes well and the stars align, and there are lots of reasons an actor might or might not get cast beyond just being right for the part or not, the actor finds out that they've been cast. Hooray! It's time to go get measured for costumes, then start the rehearsal process. Most of rehearsal is led by the director. They'll provide a schedule and tell the actor what to expect every time they show up. But there are a few steps that are solely the actor's responsibility. First, and most obviously, they have to memorize their lines. Lines have to be memorized perfectly. Unless someone is working on an improvised or devised piece, it's important that every word is preserved as the playwright intended. There are lots of methods for line memorization. If there's interest, I'm happy to do a little Flipgrid mini-vid about some of them. Secondly, though, directors expect actors to have come in having done their own character analysis, learning how they connect to the character and how they want to approach the role. This involves some text exploration, seeing what the play tells them is definitively true about the character. For example, in Much Do About Nothing, it's a given that Beatrice is Leonardo's niece and Hero's cousin, and that she and Benedict tease each other. There is potentially some dramaturgical research, figuring out what's important to know about the time period, the playwright, and so on, though sometimes there is a dramaturg to do that work. There is also scene analysis, which is where an actor decides how they are going to approach a specific scene. Let's look at one easy example of Stanislavski and scene analysis created by an acting teacher named Robert Cohen. It's the acronym GOAT, G-O-T-E. It stands for Goal, Obstacle, Tactics, Expect to Win. Scene analysis happens on a scene-by-scene basis, meaning that it has to happen anew for each scene. Some actors physically write out their analyses, and certainly in educational theater, but every actor should be thinking about these elements, and this is the place where actors make their own choices about how to approach a text. What's that look like? Let's play, using Goldilocks and the Three Bears as an example as we have in the past. Pretend that you are the actor playing Baby Bear, analyzing the scene where the Baby Bear finds Goldilocks in their bed and scares her away. Goal In a scene, an actor's goal is something they want to get from the other person. It's often phrased as, I want verb, 
other character to action. It is not a feeling. Your goal as an actor is not to feel a specific feeling. Acting is not emoting. So, as Baby Bear, perhaps I want to force Goldilocks to leave. Verb, other character, action. Force Goldilocks leave. Obstacle. Identify what's in the way. What's keeping you from getting what you want? It should probably involve the other person. As Baby Bear, Goldilocks is asleep. Tactics. Identify the tactics your character is going to use to get what you want. They can be charm tactics, flirting, cajoling, soothing, or threat tactics, threatening, guilting. Tactics are actable verbs. As Baby Bear, two tactics I might use are to scare and to attack. Expect to win. Even if a character doesn't get what they want at the end of the scene, the character doesn't know that until they live through it. You have to believe that your character can get what they want. If they didn't think they had a chance of getting what they wanted, they wouldn't keep fighting for it, so you have to know why you're fighting for it. This is also known as stakes. Why do I need to win as Baby Bear? If I don't get Goldilocks out of the house, her family might come here and take over our house. Make sure you keep this concept in your pocket. It'll come in handy in the final project of the term. Throughout the rehearsal process, it's the actor's job to show up early and ready to work, stay professional at rehearsal, including writing blocking notes, notes about where they move on stage, with a pencil in their script, and take care of their mental and physical health outside of rehearsal. During this time, they're also attending costume fittings as garments get made and fitted. At some point, there will be an off-book date, the date after which all lines must be memorized and actors can no longer have their script on stage. After that point, if the actor forgets their line, they will say line and the stage manager will provide it. In the week before the show opens, known as tech, all the technical elements get added and actors get to work with the set, lighting, costume pieces, and, when applicable, microphones. By opening night, actors are hopefully comfortable with everything they're working with on stage and ready to have a great run of the show. Part of this process of making sure actors are prepared for everything they do on stage sometimes involves working with specialists. Choreographers teach dance sequences, fight choreographers choreograph and train skills for simulated onstage violence, and actors in plays with intimate content sometimes work with an intimacy choreographer. While most actors know that they aren't able to stage a fight or choreograph a dance on their own without a specialized skill set, many early career actors don't know that someone extra might be brought on board to help them stage scenes of intimacy. Part of this is because intimacy choreography is still a fairly young field. Keep an eye out for a bonus production role engagement opportunity later in the semester to dive a little deeper into the role of an intimacy choreographer. Whether a director is helping actors with intimacy work or they're bringing in an expert, though, there are lots of different thoughts on how staging theatrical intimacy should operate. Theatrical Intimacy Education, TIE or TIE, is an organization developing fluency and best practices in theatrical intimacy in educational environments. One of the co-founders, Chelsea Pace, recently released Staging Sex, a book sharing their technique in a way that's helpful to directors, choreographers, and actors learning how to develop and advocate for safer practices. For a quick overview of how intimacy has been staged in the past and current best practices, we're going to take a look at the introduction. Read it, answer the appropriate questions in your engagement tracker, and come back. This is how we do it. 
If that introduction was interesting to you, I strongly encourage you to both take advantage of the extra credit production role engagement when it comes up and to check out Chelsea Pace's book for yourself. This isn't the only way intimacy gets staged, but it's interesting and useful to know that it's out there. Now that you know more of what an actor does in the abstract, let's look more into the specific processes of actor, playwright, and all-around renaissance woman Anna Devere Smith. Watch this interview clip, answer the questions, and come back. Go! A handful of coins, a trunk always packed. No family, no home, just this madness to act. You may have noticed that Smith's process serving as an actor in verbatim theater isn't exactly the same as an actor working in a play with fictional characters. Instead of making up or discovering specifics about how the character moves, speaks, feels, and acts, a lot of that content is dictated by her interviews with her subjects. You're going to explore this in your hands-on application for the week. First, though, it's time for... Bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. Welcome to the bare necessities, the part of the podcast where I teach you terminology you really need to know. Today's edition, understanding a script. Scripts are documents with specific conventions different from any other kind of writing, and stage scripts have different conventions than film or television scripts. It's extra useful information for you this week, because you'll be generating a script soon. In your engagement tracker, I've uploaded an image of some pages of scripts. As we go, record what different parts of the script are. Most scripts you're likely to see are published, which means they have information both from the playwright and from an editor. If the play is published, it likely begins with a production history telling you about notable performances, including their casts. At the beginning of a script, playwrights will usually include information about setting, including when and where the play is set. This could be as simple as, in a living room, present day, or it could be much more complicated. They will also include a character description letting the reader know who is in the play. This usually includes a lot of important information, how many actors are needed, whether any of those actors are playing more than one character, and relevant information about characters, sometimes including information like gender, age, race, ethnicity, style, appearance, or general vibe. Again, this can include a lot of detail or only a little, and how close of attention a given director pays to character descriptions depends on their production concept and how casting requirements are worded in the production's performance license. There are a couple of different pieces to the script itself, two kinds of writing. The first kind is stage directions. Stage directions are often the playwright's instructions or descriptions for what's happening on the stage, and are almost always indicated by text in italics, either in a clump on its own on the page or within brackets or parentheses. If you see text in italics, unless it's a book title or something else that correct writing requires to be italicized, you know that that isn't something being spoken by the character and you shouldn't say it. Stage directions can offer a ton of different kinds of information. They might tell you about the physical space, about characters' physical appearance, about actions taken on stage, he kicks the pot of plant, she kisses her, or about the delivery of a line, rapidly, suspiciously, with a tone that suggests they mean the exact opposite of their words. Fun fact, while many stage directions are from playwrights and are written when the script is written as a way of clarifying intention or directing from the page, prescriptive stage directions, some are put in after the play's Broadway or other most notable run and are instead descriptive, describing what happens in that production. 
You can sometimes tell this is the case when you're seeing really extensive, specific stage directions, dealing with the very practical details like stage directions or descriptions of set or furniture elements that aren't essential to the plot. The interesting thing about stage directions is that while they can be really helpful as a reader when you're imagining the play and can sometimes offer clarity, most actors and directors ignore specific stage directions when they get into rehearsal to stage a play, with some directors going so far as to ask actors to go ahead and mark out all stage directions before the process begins. The other kind of text you're likely to see in a play is dialogue. This is indicated with the name of the character who is speaking emphasized in some way, almost always in all caps, usually either to the left of text like this or centered on its own line, and then followed by what they say. Punctuation is helpful to understanding dialogue, and there are two tricky punctuation conventions that we have great examples of on this page. Characters in plays sometimes speak in ways that are pretty close to the way real people speak, and that means that they sometimes interrupt each other, or need to take time to stop and think about what they're saying. Pauses are sometimes indicated with a stage direction that says pause or beat, or with ellipses, the three dots, dot dot dot. If you encounter any of these as an actor, the correct response is to stop for at least the length of a breath. Here's the tricky thing. Interruptions are also sometimes indicated with ellipses at the end of a line, or with a hyphen, em dash, in dash, etc., depending on the script's typography. If you are playing a character and see that the line of the person above you doesn't seem to be the actual end of a sentence and ends with a dash or ellipses, that means that you should interrupt them before they can get to whatever the rest of their line would have been were it written. Each playwright has their own quirks. A playwright named Harold Pinter, for example, is famous for his pauses that have their own special meanings. But this should be enough to get you started. Bare necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Actors often learn everything they need to know to begin approaching a role from a script. In some forms of verbatim theater, however, actors have a much more dimensional toolkit to work with an interview with a real living person they will be playing. For your hands-on element this week, you're going to do your best to recreate at least a 45-second clip of a real person talking, doing your best to echo their words, tone, and physicality as much as possible. I'm going to ask you to find a clip of someone talking for at least 45 seconds. This could be a YouTube clip, a news segment, a TikTok, a vlog, any video that is a person being themselves, so not an actor playing a character, and that is ethically sourced, the person being recorded consented to that recording. There are no specific limitations beyond basic class guidelines of mutual respect, avoiding hate speech, etc., but there are some best practices for setting yourself up to succeed. First, you're likely to have an easier time if you choose someone whose physical and verbal ways of being in the world aren't super different from yours. If you aren't trained in doing effective dialect work, picking someone with a really strong accent that's different from your own is going to make your life harder. Second, you're likely to have an easier and more enjoyable time if you choose a clip of someone talking about something you care about or enjoy, and especially if it's someone whose speech patterns and physical habits you're familiar with. You're likely to be more successful using a clip of, say, your favorite comedian, or a reality show you've watched a gabillion times, rather than just googling someone talking for a minute. Third, please don't pick something with a subject matter that's going to bum you out to rehearse it. It's going to take you time to prep for this performance, so choose something you're comfortable living with for an hour or two this week. Once you've chosen the video clip you're going to try to recreate, you'll share the URL of it in your engagement tracker and write a transcript for yourself. 
Write down everything the person says exactly how they say it. If there are any particularly notable physical movements, write down when those happen, putting them in parentheses to indicate stage directions. You'll share that transcript in your engagement tracker too, but more importantly, you'll use it alongside the video to rehearse. Your goal by Saturday night is to be able to record a flip grid of yourself performing this 45-second clip of another person. In a perfect world, the clip is memorized, but if it isn't fully memorized, there must be at least two sentences you know well enough to be able to deliver, making full eye contact with the camera. You should also be able to find at least two moments where you are echoing the physicality of the subject, a gesture, a facial expression, etc. Throughout, remember that your goal is not to create a caricature of the person, but to act them as authentically as your body and voice allows. This is going to need some rehearsal. To help you make sure you aren't putting choosing an inspiration video off until Saturday afternoon, you have your ensemble Flipgrid post due Wednesday. In this post, you're going to tell your ensemble about what clip you're choosing to recreate, why you chose that clip, and either a line that you really love performing or that you have a hard time performing. Share what you're learning about acting in verbatim theater in this process, then close with a discussion question. Have fun! I can't wait to see your work. Bye! Y'all, I'm, uh, I'm running out of songs that have the word goodbye in them, so feel free to email suggestions. But for now, uh, we're done here. Have a good week.